Well, as promised this morning, we are giving the second portrait of a two-portrait series, I guess you would say. First, last week we talked about a portrait of biblical manhood, and this week we talk about a portrait of biblical womanhood. And the reason we've gone here, and we've taken a break from our series in Matthew just for a couple weeks, is to really do what Jesus was doing with his disciples. You remember in Matthew 19 and 20, people approach him, whether it's the Pharisees or the rich young guy, and they ask this question. And what Jesus does is he not only corrects that person, but he also corrects his disciples, because the disciples have imbibed a lot of the cultural mindset first century Palestinian Judaism of those around them. And so he's teaching and correcting not only the person who approaches him in terms of things like marriage, divorce and remarriage, in terms of uh, self-reliance, in terms of things like greatness, but he's correcting the disciples as well in their thinking. And so really, if you're living by the kingdom culture, the culture that God wants and will ultimately have over the whole world, well, that culture will look inverted from the culture of, or the, the culture of the, the society around you. That's true. Uh, Christians will swim against the culture that is around them. And so we thought, well, let's talk about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood because there is nothing, no point of contact between the church and the culture today that is more inverted, more confused. So last week we talked about biblical manhood, a portrait of biblical manhood. And we, just to remind you of the points we hit last week, we said that a strong biblical man understands God's design for biblical manhood. We said that a strong biblical man loves the one true God with all of his being. We said that a strong biblical man is utterly dependent on God. We said that a strong biblical man loves his neighbor as himself, and we said that a strong biblical man conforms to the man, Jesus Christ. And really, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, um, those commands, they're general. Uh, They're overlapping. They're overlapping for men and for women because we both have the command to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the only way we can do that is through utter dependence on the man, Jesus Christ. And so the way we're going to approach today, one way to approach today in talking about a portrait of biblical womanhood would be to just go back through those points. But I think it is better to take a different approach this morning, not that those commands aren't for women, uh, not that they are not beholden on women. They are very much so. But like I said last week, uh, obeying those commands and what that looks like is going to look different on a man and it's going to look different on a woman because God has given us different roles. But our culture does not understand that. I don't know if any of you heard recently, uh, I think this is a few months ago now, uh, the Senate confirmation hearings for Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, and it just illustrates what happened in that hearing or among those hearings just illustrates the confusion in our culture over what a woman is. Senator Blackburn, a woman, asked Justice Jackson, also a woman, to define the word woman. And Justice Jackson would not do it. She said, I cannot do that in this context. She said, I'm not a biologist. 
And we understand why that uh, uh, Justice Jackson was doing that. We understand that Justice Jackson fully understands what a woman is. She is a woman. That's not the issue. But what is happening there is that she, she knows what a woman is, but she chooses not to know. She chooses not to know for political reasons because of the cultural and political pressures in our society right now. That's what was going on in that interchange. Friends, God is not afraid to define what a woman is because he made her. He made her perfect in exactly the way he wanted her to be. God is not afraid of social pressure. The Bible is not afraid of social pressure. Jesus is not afraid of social pressure. And so what we are going to do this morning is we are going to listen to God's words about what a woman is. What does biblical womanhood look like? And so the big idea for this morning is this. Pursue praiseworthy biblical womanhood. Submitting to the man, Jesus Christ. Pursue praiseworthy biblical womanhood, submitting to the man, Jesus Christ. Now, where we're going to start this morning is very similar to the way we started last week. Uh, where we're going to, how we're going to progress is going to be different, but where we start is going to be very similar, which is here. A praiseworthy biblical woman understands God's design for womanhood. A praiseworthy biblical woman understands God's design for womanhood. We did this last week. This is where we started last week. We started in Genesis 1 through 3, and that's where we're going to start this morning. Because if you want to know and understand God's design for something, you go to Genesis. You go to Genesis 1 through 3, by and large. If you want to know about a topic and what God's design is for it, you at least start there. And there we have great instruction as far as God's design for both men and women. So we talked about men last week, and where we started is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And we're going to start in the exact same place, because not only is that passage about men, it is also about women. And so look at Genesis 1, 26, culmination of the creation as far as God making something. On day six, here's what he says, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the fundamental marching orders for humanity. This is God creating his image and his likeness. Now, we said those terms last week. That idea of likeness is the idea of sonship, of being a child, uh, you can see in Genesis 5 how Seth is called the likeness of Adam because he's his son. In a similar sort of way, God is setting things up here in Genesis 1 for both male and female to be sons and daughters of God. And not only sons and daughters, but they have a role. They are image bearers. To be an image bearer is to be a stewardship ruler under God to extend God's glory in the world. 
That is the fundamental marching orders for humanity, to exercise dominion, stewardship dominion under God over the earth, reshaping, gathering, uh, shaping creation, the raw materials of creation, shaping society in such a way that God is brought honor and glory. That is the fundamental marching orders for humanity. But notice this. Last week, we focused on the role of the man in that, and we see that in uh, not only here, but in Genesis 2, that the man is to, has the role of leadership, initiative, work, guarding, keeping, all of those sorts of things. But notice here, when we come back to Genesis 1, and as we focus on women, that women are to be rulers as well. Women are to exercise dominion as well alongside of men. They are to work together in this role to... One, multiply image bearers on the face of the earth, but also this task of exercising dominion over the creation in such a way that it brings honor to God. And that's this, it's the same, that same fundamental mission is for both men and for women. But as we get into Genesis 2, there is, uh, while in Genesis 1 we have equality, we have equality of essence, equality of mission, uh, equality of dignity, both man and woman are equally image bearers of the uh, one true and living God. The way that works itself out, the way the mission works itself out is di different depending on roles. And we see that in Genesis 2. So last week we saw that the man is, God makes the man, he makes the man from dust, breathes into him the breath of life, and what does the man do? He, um, he names, he names the animals, etc. He's to be a priest. He's to, um, he's to work and to guard. We talked about that. But then we get this in 2.18. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good. Now that's very fascinating at this point because everything up to this point in the creation narrative is it's good. It's good. But here we see that God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Man wasn't designed to be alone. Man wasn't designed to function and do this monumental task on his own. I will make him a helper fit for him or corresponding to him. It's the idea that the man needs a helper to correspond to him, to help him in this monumental task of being a son, a ruler, a priest for God's glory in the world. And so he's going to make a helper. What's he do? Verse 19, now out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So here you see the man's initiative. He's taking a, uh, he's naming, that is a, an authoritative role and doing part of what God has called him to do. But part of what God is doing is he's showing this isn't going to work. None of these other animals are going to be the helper. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took, out, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Now, what do you see here? I mean, there's lots that could be said about this passage, but I want to draw your attention as we're thinking about the fundamental design of womanhood. We see it, the genesis of it here in this text. The fundamental role and design is for the woman to be a helper, a helper corresponding to the man. Now, yes, we see that in this text in the context of a marriage, the first marriage, and uh, we're going to see that throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, by and large, uh, 95% or uh, whatever percentage, a majority of cases, that is where that, those roles are going to be displayed. Not only, not exclusively, but by and large, that's where those roles are going to first and foremost be displayed. The man is to take leadership, work, initiative, guarding, all of those things, and the woman inside that marriage is to help and come alongside. But to what end? Well, the what to what end is Genesis 1, to shape creation, to shape society, to exercise rule and dominion together with those corresponding roles for God's glory and honor. This is how God designed it. Do you notice the woman is not created in the same way that man is? Man is made from the dust, from the ground, and God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Woman is taken from man, and she is fashioned into a woman, a woman corresponding, a perfect corresponding helper to the man. That's what, man, uh, what Adam's saying when he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He recognizes, unlike all the other animals that could potentially help, only the woman can fulfill this role, and he needs her. He needs her. God sees that the man needs her. And so this, this is the fundamental idea of the design for biblical womanhood. Woman is to be a helper to man. Primarily, that's going to be in the marriage relationship, though not exclusively. Even as the scriptures unfold, and even I think from this text, we could say that uh, this is a general pattern that, yes, primarily will happen in the marriage, though not exclusively. This is man and woman need to work together in general to do their role, to do the role of exercising dominion for God's glory and honor in the world. Now, ladies, if you are struggling with the term helper, you shouldn't, because the term helper that's used here, it's used of God himself. It's used of God himself to come alongside and to help and to rescue man. Now, obviously, we're talking about God versus a human, but still, the idea is it is an honorable title. God has designed it this way, and he has imbued it with dignity, honor, and beauty. So, what do we learn from Genesis 1 through 3? We learn basically this. The male has the primary job of leading, initiating, working, and guarding to pursue God's program, and yet the woman is to come alongside, is necessary to come alongside and help in that project as an equal image bearer, yet with a different role. Equality of essence, distinction in role. And you know what's amazing about that is it's not an accident. Because man and woman together form this image-bearing reality which mirrors the Trinity itself. Because who is God? God is one God in three persons. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Equal dignity, 
equal value, equal in essence, and yet what? The Son doesn't have the same role as the Father does, nor does the Spirit have the same role as the Father or the Son. And so in a marriage relationship, in a family, even more broadly, there is the potential to mirror and display God's own unity in diversity. Now, like I said, um, in the context of Genesis 1 through 3, this is primarily between man and woman. Uh, The woman being a helper is primarily, though not exclusively, going to happen in the home. And that's not just the witness of Genesis 1 and 2. That is the witness of Scripture. Go to the New Testament. Go to a time after Jesus has risen and ascended, and when the Apostle Paul is talking about and valuing womanhood and the role of women go to 1 Titus 2. Now, I want to say this morning, I'm going to highlight a few texts. And the texts that I'm going to highlight are not the only texts that have bearing on this whole question. They do not. There is more to it. But these are some keynote texts that we kind of fall to and go back to to explain God's design. So after Jesus has died, resurrected, Um, and ascended into heaven, we get Paul giving instructions to the church, in this case through Titus. And let's look at Titus 2. Now, Titus 2 is not just about women. Titus 2 is about all sorts of human relationships. Uh, It's about older men and young men, and it's about slaves and masters. But in the middle of this, starting in verse 2, we get this information. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the fundamental design for womanhood, it hasn't changed Uh, even after the fall, even after Jesus is resurrected, primarily, though not exclusively, the woman will, uh, her role is to come alongside and help in the home with a husband and with children. To what end? See and notice to what end that Paul is pointing here, that the word of God may not be reviled. What is at stake in this is not opinion, but God's glory and God's honor because it's God's design. And we see that in Titus 2. We can see it in 1 Timothy, just a couple pages to the left. 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, uh, Paul is again giving instructions to a church in Ephesus, different church than Titus. He's giving instructions to the church in, um, in, in Ephesus, but he's doing it through Timothy. So he's giving instructions to Timothy In 1 Timothy 5, he gives um, Timothy a long list of instructions of how to handle widows. Uh, Should a widow be put on uh, church support is basically the idea. And there's a lot about what Paul says here. But what is interesting in the middle of this is what he says in verses 9 and 10. So this isn't the only criteria for being, being uh, being a widow put on church support. But I want you to see... What Paul, and by extension, God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is saying. 1 Timothy 5.9, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. 
and having a reputation for good works, as she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every work. Now, what do you see in that? You see two things, actually. You see, again, Paul emphasizing, uh, if you want a, a widow to be put on church support, well, one of the criteria has to be that she's cared for her own family, because that's God's fundamental design. But that's not the only thing you see. This is why I keep saying primarily, but not exclusively. Because what you also see in this is that not only is she caring for her own family, but she is caring for others, and especially the local church. If we were to put it in the context of family, there's two families that we're a part of. We're part of our biological family, and then through Christ, we are adopted into the family of God, and we have a responsibility to that family as well. And the woman has a role of helping in each one. Paul says it, uh, he's saying it to widows there, like, okay, have they lived this way? Have they fulfilled God's design? But he even mentions this in the context of younger widows, verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Again, what is at stake here? It seems mundane to care for the family, to work in the family, to nourish the family. And yet what Paul is saying, what God is saying, is that the honor of God, the honor of the church is at stake. Give the adversary no occasion for slander. And so what is woman to be? Woman is to be a helper, primarily, though not exclusively, in a married relationship. Uh, We understand from the scriptures that there is a category, an exalted category of single women who serve and are yet in that capacity of service still helpers, helpers to the church. Paul values that, 1 Corinthians 7, God values that. And just to show you another picture, a small picture of this reality of, okay, what does it look like? We get that in the family, nourishing the family, caring for the family, the children, the husband, coming alongside him as he leads and takes initiative. But what does it look like in the context of the church? Well, we've got a beautiful picture of this in Romans 16. Go to Romans 16. So now I'm transitioning us from that helper role in the context of a family, a biological family, to the context of the family of faith. And we see a beautiful picture of that helping role in Romans 16. And some of you already know where I'm going with this, but look at Romans 16, 1 through 2. Now, this is the part of uh, the scriptures where you uh, you probably maybe a speed through speed read through this section because it's the greetings. And you're like, well, what does the greetings have to do with me? Well, actually, there's a lot packed in those greetings that is profound. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, I commend you our sister Phoebe, a servant. Now, this is the word diakonos, which is where we get our word deacon from. A servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And we don't know a lot about Phoebe. All we know is from this verses, but what we do know is profound. Because what we see here is a woman with a very great task. Phoebe is most likely the letter carrier for Romans. So Paul, you know, if he finishes writing Romans, you know, inspired text by the Holy Spirit, and he needs to get this delivered to the church in Rome, well, who's he going to entrust it to? He's going to entrust it to Phoebe. 
He's going to entrust it to Phoebe to take the road, the, the, the risk, uh, all uh, uh, the monumental task to help support this church in Rome. And there's also indications that this isn't the first time she's been of service, that she's been helping the church in this way. So you shouldn't get the picture when I say that woman uh, in God's eyes is to be a helper of man. You should not get the picture of someone stifled and cloistered at home. It's not the picture that Scripture gives, and we'll see that from Proverbs 31 as well. The picture is of honor, honorable tasks, risky tasks even, for the sake of the family, but for the sake of also the church, the family of faith. This is beautiful. Woman is to primarily be, is to be a helper for man, primarily, though not exclusively, in the context of a family, her family. Now, before we leave the idea of design, what's God's design, we need to talk about the dirty word, the dirty S word, submission. We need to talk about um, the, uh, the word submission. Now, you know this. We can counter this. And this, isn't, this word isn't used like one time. It's used multiple times in the Scriptures. Go back to Titus 2. Go back to Titus 2. We already saw it. And we need to understand, I'm, I'm camping here because this is where people stumble and this is where we struggle, but we need to understand what does submission mean and what doesn't it mean? So go to Titus 2, back to, uh, let's say, verse 4. And what is Paul saying? Older women are to train the younger women so that, uh, in verse 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive, there it is, to their own husbands. When we talk about this relationship between man and woman, and specifically between a man and his wife, we talk about the issue of submission. Now, what does submission mean? We've talked about this before. We talked about it a couple months ago when we were doing our series on the family. Here's the basic sense of what submission means. It means order under. Uh, you can think of a military context if you want to. Let's suppose I've got a two-star general and a one-star general. Who submits to who? Well, the one-star general submits to the two-star general, right? He's going to take orders from the two-star general. Uh, the one-star general is going to take orders from the two-star general. He's going to order himself under that in that chain of command. Now, here's the question. Does that mean, because the one-star general submits to the two-star general, does that mean that the one-star general, one general is inherently inferior to the two-star general? Absolutely not. That doesn't make any sense. But it is a role that the one-star general has that the two-star general uh, has another role. And so when you think about submission, you should not at all, you should never think inherent inferiority. That's what culture says. That's why we struggle and stumble over this word submission is, oh, well, if you're submitting to someone else, that means you're inherently inferior. Well, baloney, that doesn't even make sense even in uh, situations in our own day, like in the military, let alone in a family. And the idea of biblical submission, it is never co coerced. It is voluntary. Submission does not imply anything about the relative worth or inherent value of the people in the relationship. The idea is the person who is to submit is to do so voluntarily. 
In other words, when you read this language of submission in the Bible, you should not think that the man, the man's not being called to subjugate a woman. That is not what is happening. And that's kind of what we read on top of it, that submission is subjugation. It is not. A man is not called to subjugate a woman. A woman is not called to submit to abusive or oppressive behavior, which selfishly seeks coercive control. That is what abuse is. Abuse is oppression. That's what the Bible calls abuse, is oppression. And the Bible hates oppressors. God hates oppressors. And a woman is not called to submit to abusive or oppressive behavior, which selfishly seeks coercive control. That's what abuse and oppression does. It seeks control. It seeks subjugation. But that's not biblical submission. Biblical submission is voluntary for the sake of what? Working together. Back to Genesis 1 and 2, working together for God's glory and honor. The husband loves the wife. The wife submits and takes leadership, or take, takes, uh, the, the husband takes initiative, leadership, and the wife defers to that as she is able to do so. The husband is the head of the family. That authority and leadership is given by God for the family. That's consistent from creation, uh, from Genesis to Revelation. That is the consistent pattern. Now, saying that, that does not mean that a woman is called to submit to every man, right? A wife is called to submit to her husband. But it also, there is, we do see patterns of Scripture where women are called to submit to men that are not their husbands, especially in the context of the local church. Go to 1 Timothy 2. I'm just hitting all the great passages today. But here's the thing. This is God. This is what he's saying. I'm not embarrassed by it. We're not embarrassed by it because this is God's design. And God's designs beautiful things. So in the context of 1 Timothy 2, um, looking at verse 12, listen to this. So Paul, again, he's giving instructions to Timothy, and Timothy is supposed to help the church in Ephesus. So we're talking about a local church. In the context of a local church here, 1 Timothy 2.12, I thank him who has given me, sorry, that was one, my bad, two. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So we're going back to creation again. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, I don't have time today to go through all the nuances of that text. All I want to point out to you is that even in the context of a local church, there is a category for women helping, nourishing, submitting to leadership. This is why at Faith Bible Church, we only have male elders and will, by God's grace, only have male elders. Why? Because we are conforming and seeking to conform to the creation design as Paul lays out here. But when you think about this, you think of teamwork. You think of equal image bearing, equally trying to honor God in all that we do, and God has given a different role to the woman of helping and a different role to the man of taking initiative and leading for the flourishing of the woman and for the flourishing of all. That's what good leadership is supposed to do. That leadership is seeking to serve those that it is leading, whether that's the husband leading his wife and his own family to nourish her, to care for her, to nourish children, to lead and take initiative and take risk and to guard all for the flourishing of the family and the woman is to help and take the take uh, take 
listen and to defer to that leadership. But that also happens at least in the context of the church, that men are to lead, take initiative, guard for the sake of the church, for the good of Christ's bride, whom he loves dearly. So that is first thing we need to see. A praiseworthy biblical woman understands God's design for womanhood, which is fundamentally, if we were to boil it down to one word, helper corresponding. Helper corresponding to the man. But next, we need to see this. A praiseworthy biblical woman acts with substance because she fears the Lord. A praiseworthy biblical woman acts with substance because she fears the Lord. And where we're going with this is we're going to Proverbs 31. It's interesting to me that, you know, in talking about a portrait of biblical manhood last week, and now talking this week a portrait of biblical womanhood, we don't, men don't get a poem. Men don't get a poem for biblical man. In fact, it's kind of hard. We have to kind of go over here, there, and everywhere in Scripture to pick up this portrait. And it's not that, and I don't want you to think that uh, womanhood is condensed to this text, okay? Uh, I don't want you to think that as we're going to Proverbs 31. And yet, it is designed as a wisdom text, as poetry, to encapsulate and give you an ideal snapshot of what biblical womanhood is. So let me give you a little bit of context to Proverbs 31 before we jump into it. Uh, First, you will notice in Proverbs 31, verse 1, these are the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. So what have we got here? We've got a king, uh, doesn't seem like a king of Israel, unless he's got a nickname called Lemuel. But uh, this king is a God-fearer, evidently, Uh, He knows Yahweh as the one true God. But this information that he's relaying and is evidently inspired uh, scripture, it ultimately comes from an oracle that his mom taught him. Okay, so as we walk through the text, we're not going to look at verses uh, 1 through 9, where we get some of the initial bits of that information, but it continues. These are the words of Lemuel from verse 10 through verse 31. A few other pieces of context here. Um, You can't see this in your English Bibles, but verses 10 through 31 are an acrostic. You guys know what an acrostic is. If I take the first letter of the alphabet and then I give some attribute or whatever it might be, and then you go to the next letter. So like in our alphabet, A, you know, maybe I have the attribute awesome. And then I go down to B and then I say beautiful. And then I go down to C, and I say, um, a courageous, right? That's the idea of an acrostic. Well, in Hebrew, uh, verses 10 through 31 are an acrostic. goes through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the consonants. And uh, each line, verse 10 starts with the first letter, verse 11 starts with the next letter, uh, verse 12 goes to the next letter. Now, so what does that tell us? What does that tell us? It tells us a couple things. One, uh, Lemuel in structuring this, or maybe, you know, he's relaying it from his mom, this took a lot of effort. You ever try to do something like that, um, something skilled like that, and, uh, you know, going through all these attributes or doing something uh, like that? It's hard. So it takes a great deal of skill to do this. But here's another thing. Why in the world would you use the alphabet and every letter in the alphabet? What does that communicate? Well, it communicates order, and it communicates completeness. 
In other words, what? The form of how Lemuel is using this text is he's trying to say, I'm trying to give you a complete and orderly snapshot of womanhood, of the wise woman, the excellent woman. Which brings us to another thing. Um, when you see in verse 10 there, we're talking about what? An excellent wife. Two things about that. The word excellent is this word that often is used in other contexts to talk of multiple different things. The word can be, that's translated excellent can mean wealth. It can mean strength. Uh, it can mean army. This is a very strong word. And uh, it, rather than excellent, excellence trying to convey this sense of we're talking about a very strong word, and we're also, even as the poem unfolds, we're talking about a woman who's kind of framed in terms of military-type language. In other words, she's kind of a warrior, and you get to see that. Although her battle is not on the front lines, uh, um, you know, fighting the Amorites or whoever, her, bat um, her battle line is at home. And you kind of see that language unfold. So to try to convey this sense of we're talking about not just an excellent woman, but a woman of substance. I like that word. I read it a couple times this week. This is the woman of substance. Now you might say, yeah, but she's a wife. Uh, we're just talking about a wife. Um, we're not talking about women in general. Well, remember, we go back to God's design in Genesis 1 and 2, and the majority, though not exclusively, of cases in the scriptures, uh, a woman is going to and God's design is to going to be a helper at home. Now, if you're single here this morning, and I know we have many of you, and you're a single woman, you shouldn't check out for multiple reasons. Even if you were to remain single all of your days, that does not make you inferior. It does not make you a lesser human being. Far from it. We know from 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness is a godly and good calling. And I know it's hard, too. But even a lot of the principles, the character that we see in this snapshot here in Proverbs 31 are things that can be emulated whether you're married or not. And so that's what we're going to go through. We're going to go through briefly this idea. Finally, at, before we walk through it, what is Proverbs all about? Wisdom, right? Wisdom. How do you walk with wisdom? How do you walk with skill? Well, it's appropriate that you get to the end of Proverbs where women, a woman has been characterized as the embodiment of wisdom throughout, and we get and end a poem with a real woman who embodies wisdom. So let us march through the text. A woman of substance who can find, meaning what? This person's rare to find someone like this. She is far more precious than jewels. The poem starts with a general overview of uh, trying to find a woman of substance in a fallen world is hard. It is very, very, very hard. It is rare. Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Verse 12, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And again, this is a general statement of her value, but her value to who? The husband. You might say, well, why is it a value to her husband? Well, remember the teamwork idea. The teamwork idea coming from Genesis 1 and 2. The man's to lead, take initiative, guard, protect his family. The woman is to come alongside as a helper. And basically, verses 11 and 12 are saying that's working. 
To find a woman like that where, where she's, they're working as husband and wife together, that is a rare and a beautiful thing. Okay, so what's she do? Verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. The idea of willing hands is more the idea of hands of delight. What's she doing? What's this? There's a lot of cultural gap here, right? You don't seek wool and flax, at least not in this form, like she is. What is she doing? She's getting raw materials, wool and flax, that you would use to make thread and make clothes. And we'll see that theme kind of go throughout. What's she doing? She's taking initiative to find these raw materials. She's being industrious to find these raw materials to work with them, to, to make things with them, as we will see. Verse 14, she is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. So this woman is going out to, uh, maybe she's made some stuff and she sells it. We find that she does that later and she buys and she's able to buy some good food. And she's searching. In our vernacular, in our context, it would be like looking all the reviews on Amazon, right? You're looking at all the reviews on Amazon, and my wife is so good at this. Um, she'll look at, well, we need this thing. She'll balance this. Uh, let's look at these comments. Look at this, and we're going to get some good stuff, right? In this case, good food. Good food to nourish her family, because look at verse 15. She rises while it is yet night. She gets up early and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Now, the Israelite household, and evidently this household is a well-to-do household, there's a husband and a wife, and there's the kids, but there's also servants. And so that's the idea here. She's getting the day set up. She's getting the day set up to nourish the whole household and providing what they need. Now, you might pause for a minute and say, you know, why are we going through this? Why don't we just talk about loving our neighbor as ourselves? Well, this is loving her neighbor as herself. She's loving her, those closest to her, nourishing and caring for them. And you might say, oh, this woman's just cloistered. She's stifled at home. Well, that's not what the picture we get in verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. Now, that seems unusual to me, especially in an Israelite society, to consider and weigh a field. She's going out and saying, well, uh, you know, she's selling stuff. Maybe she saved up enough money, um, and she goes out and buys a field. And then what she does with this field is she plants a vineyard. Planting a vineyard is a very economical, uh, it, it was hard to do, uh, but it was a very lucrative thing to do. She's industrious. She's enterprising. She's economic. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Actually, it's the idea that she girds her waist with strength. And this is where we get some of the military language. You you, we, we're familiar with that language, to gird, up, um, gird yourself up in a military sense. But here we're saying she's doing it. And what is being communicated in verse 17, she's not afraid of hard work. She's not afraid of hard work. This woman works inside the home and for her home, but she definitely has interactions outside the home in a very lucrative, enterprising, business-like sort of way, and she's not afraid of hard, good work. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. So she got up early, she's going to bed late, but what's she doing? She's not spending time watching YouTube videos. She is spending, or on Instagram, she is working for the flourishing of her household. 
Verse 19, she puts her hand to the distaff and her hands to the spindle. And you're like, what is that? What's a distaff? What's a spindle? Well, those are the implements that you would use to take things like wool and flax uh, to make thread so you could then either make it into clothes or sell it. So she's industrious. She's doing that. But notice something interesting here, especially as we get into verse 20. What is she doing in verse, um, in verse uh, 19? Her hands stretch out to the spindle, and her palm takes the distaff, or takes the, the whirl, the spinning part. But then in verse 20, notice what is mentioned again. We've got hands and palms, and then in verse 20, they get mentioned again. Her palm is, reaches out to the poor, and her hands stretch out to the needy. In other words, she's not just working hard for her own household with her hands, with her palms. She's actually using that strength not only for her own household, but for those outside, for the poor and the needy. Again, loving her neighbor as herself. This isn't just selfish, like accumulationism, uh, working hard for her family. That's not what she's doing. She's actually doing this also for the poor and the needy. Verse 21 She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Now, scarlet clothing is like top-of-the-line clothing. And so the picture is, she's not worried about the weather. She's accumulated what is necessary for her home. She's nourishing her home, so she's not afraid. She's not anxious about potential disaster. Verse 22, she makes bed coverings for herself, and her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now, this is high-quality stuff. Again, we see her searching things out, being taking initiative, selling stuff to be able to accumulate this. Uh, It's that snapshot picture of she's done well. Notice verse 23. This kind of seems odd. Uh, We've talked about her and what she's doing, but notice verse 23. What's it amount to? Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. In ancient Israel, business and uh, leadership happened in the gates, the city gates. And you're like, well, why is the husband all of a sudden um, mentioned? Why is he brought up? Because everything this woman is doing is enhancing and enabling this man to lead. She's doing her part. She's working on her side and her role such that Her husband can take initiative, can lead in a very public way. Her reputation doesn't bring his down. He's known, and he's known partially because, and even set in the context of this poem, primarily for what his wife does. It's that teamwork aspect. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and she sells them. So she's still enterprising. She's still seeking to uh, nourish her family. Um, She delivers sashes to the merchant. She's out and about doing this. She's thinking ahead, all of this. And then verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Strength and dignity, that's what's been displayed so far in the poem. And so it allows her, all of her initiative, all of her effort, all of her industry has allowed her to laugh at the time to come. She's not anxious She's not worried because she knows who she is. She knows how she works, and she has worked hard, and she's, she's planned ahead. She's able to laugh at the time to come. And then notice this, verse 26. This is beautiful. She opens her mouth with wisdom, 
and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So she teaches. Well, what does she teach? A couple things. Wisdom, as encapsulated in Proverbs, but other places as well. Proverbs isn't the only book on wisdom in the Scriptures. But then also this, the teaching. You know what, normally how we translate this word teaching? Law. Instruction. Instruction in what? Instruction in kindness. The idea of kindness here, it's, it's an act, it, it's, it seems like the picture is she's teaching, whoever she's teaching, children, uh, those in her household, uh, whoever's around her, she's teaching them kindness, how to act kindly. We've seen her not only care for her household, but care for those in the community, loving her neighbor as herself. She's teaching her household how to do that. Or another way to boil down verse 26, she's a woman of the word. Sometimes in Christian circles, when we talk about the complementary roles of men and women, there kind of gets this, un, uh, you know, I think it's unintentional, but sometimes there comes off as like, well, the men are just supposed to study the scriptures and do theology and doctrine and all of that, and the women are just supposed to learn from them. That is not the case. How do I know that's not the case? Well, I've got this verse, but I've also got people like Mary. You ever look at Mary's uh, Magnificat and Luke um, uh, Luke uh, 1, 46 through 55, if you read that closely, that woman knew her Bible. She knew what God was doing in history. She was able to refer to the covenants and how God was working through covenants. She's referring to like multiple verses of scripture. She knew her Bible. And uh, excellent women, women of substance, ought to know their Bible so that they can teach others. Women, you ought to pursue uh, strong, good teaching and learning. You ought to learn the Bible well. I'm just going to say this. Most of the Christian women's stuff that's out there, 90% of it is garbage. Garbage. I have no hesitancy in saying that because I've seen some of it. It's just dreadful. Because why? Because women weren't encouraged to learn, to do the hard work of studying theology, studying doctrine, studying Hebrew and Greek. Um, and what's beautiful about our women's Bible study on Tuesday is we've got a group of women digging into the scriptures and saying, what does the scripture say? And they're practicing good interpretive principles because they're seeking to grow to be women of the word. And that is a woman of substance or part of being a woman of substance. She teaches, teaches the word. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. In other words, in all of this and what she's doing with her hands and work and also through the, the, the teaching of the word and wisdom, she's guarding her household and she's not lazy. Friends, whether you're a man or woman here today, laziness is a sin. Laziness is not just a bad habit. It's not just a, a bad idea. It's not just that you're ruining your life. It's a sin. Why can I say that? Because God owns your time. God owns your life. And he owns all aspects of your life. And he expects you to use your time in a God-honoring way. Now, this doesn't mean that you're working 24-7 and you can't take rest. God uh, incorporated rest into his creation. That should happen. But we see here the woman of substance does not eat the bread of idleness. She's not scrolling on her phone all day. She's not playing around on social media. 
all day. It's not that you can't use that, those things. I'm just saying that what is the picture here? Diligence. Diligence, working hard, not being lazy. What's the result? We get to see the result of all of this snapshot, really, in the last few verses here. Verse 28, her sons, not just her children, it's her sons, rise up and call her blessed. And this word for blessed, it's the idea that you have God's favor on you and we recognize it. It is high praise. Her husband also, and he praises her. Because she has done all of this. And again, what is she doing? She's being that helper and nourishing the family. She's loving neighbors as herself. She's done all of what we have seen in this poem. What does the husband say? Verse 29, many women, actually it's literally many daughters. It's kind of a, a nice, gentle way to talk about Israelite women. Many daughters have done excellently, but you surpass them all. And then we get what the husband says, and then in verse 30 and 31, it's kind of like we're back to the narrator, we're back to Lemuel speaking, and this is very interesting how he culminates the poem. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. Now, what are these things, charm and beauty? These are things that are surface attractions in a woman. And Lemuel is not saying they shouldn't be there. He's not saying that they shouldn't be there. But what do women, and even our culture at large, tend to do with charm and beauty? They make it everything. And if you make charm and beauty, the external form, the external beauty, everything, you're going to experience that it's empty and deceitful. Instead, where does ultimate beauty come from? Verse 30, but a woman who fears the Lord, the woman who fears Yahweh. Now, what does it mean to fear Yahweh? It means to know the one true and living God, to stand in awe of him, to reverence him, to be submitted to him. We would say it's, this woman's a believer. That's how the fear of the Lord means. Reverencing God, knowing God. God is the God of her life. That's what makes all of this of what is happening in the poem possible. She loves the Lord her God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She fears him, and that is why this behavior manifests itself. She loves her neighbor as herself because she loves the Lord her God. She fears Yahweh with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's what's very interesting. You see that, how that verse 30 ends? But a woman who fears the Lord, your translation probably says, is to be praised. But the form of the verb in Hebrew, every other time in the scriptures, is not referring to being praised, but to boasting. Boasting. And I believe it should be rendered this way because of that. But a woman who fears Yahweh boasts. A woman who fears Yahweh will boast. And you're like, really? Boasts? We're not supposed to boast, are we? Absolutely we are. You just have to boast in the right thing. Jeremiah 9.23 through 24, let not a mighty man boast in his might, let not a rich man boast in his riches, uh, let not a uh, wise man boast in his wisdom, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, and I practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Same word for boasting used there as here. And what is the point? The point is, if you boast, 
You don't boast in something transitory like charm or beauty. You boast in knowing God. That is your all. Like we said last week, love the Lord your God with all of your being, with every ounce of who you are, every action that you have. That is what is driving this woman. She boasts in knowing Yahweh. So her family praises her. She gets to boast. And then look at verse 31. The society in general gets to praise her. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works Praise her. See the repetition of praise there. Praise her in the gates. Family's praising her. She gets to boast, and society boasts in her as well. Did you notice, as we go through this poem, what is the woman's most beautiful physical feature? Her hands. Her hands and her palms are mentioned multiple times throughout. Because we know it's not that charm and beauty are bad, but they're going to pass away in a fallen world. But what lasts? What lasts is knowing and loving and boasting in God and working that out with your hands. The most beautiful part of a woman of substance is her hands, what she does and acts as she loves the Lord her God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves her neighbor as herself. Now you might say, this is unattainable. And it is. It is an, it's, it's an ideal snapshot. It's something to steer by. For who? Well, for a woman, yes, but actually, how did it start? A woman of substance who can find. The man's looking for this kind of woman, too. And you might say, this is unattainable. Well, actually, there are women in Scripture who are, would fill this bill, at least not perfectly. We're not talking about perfection. This isn't perfection. This is not perfection. Ruth is called a woman of substance, same exact phrase. You can think of ladies like Hannah, and you can think of the mother of our Lord, Mary. Those are women of substance. Not perfect, still sinful, but loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbors as themselves. So what's the portrait that we pull together from Proverbs 31? The woman of substance is resourceful and industrious. She enhances her reputation through helping her husband, her home, and her community. She knows the word, and most of all, she knows and fears Yahweh. How do you you transition to some application and implication. How do you become a woman of substance? The wrong answer would be, I'm just going to work harder. That would be the wrong answer. Yes, you're going to have to work hard, but that's not where you start. Where you start is Luke 7. Go to Luke 7. The Bible never shirks away from holding a high standard. God calls men and women to a high standard, and he says, act, do, do these things. But that's not where you start. You don't just start by saying, all right, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to gear myself up, and I'm going to work harder. I'm going to knuckle down and just work harder. Look at what happens in Luke 7, 36. Here's how you become a woman of substance. 
One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Okay, so is this a woman of substance? No, not according to Proverbs 31. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought him an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So she recognizes in some measure who Jesus is, and she's expressing that. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered at your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the, one, to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's how you start. And that's where you come back to, to be a woman of substance. Because we all know in this room, whether you're a woman or a man, we are sinners. And what are we in need of? We are in need of the grace of Jesus Christ, a grace that not only forgives sin, but transforms us such that we can love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. But it only comes through the grace that is in Jesus Christ. So as a woman this morning, seek to be a woman of substance through the grace and dependence that is in Jesus Practice submission appropriate to varying relationships. And I'll remind you, do not submit to oppression or abuse. Practice submission appropriate to varying relationships, but do not submit to oppression or abuse. Be women of the word. Serve others, not yourself. This goes exactly against our cultural messages. Love yourself before you love others. You need to have some self-care. You need to have a full cup before you minister to others. That is exactly opposite what the Bible says. The Bible says you're going to need to minister to others, and you're going to have no strength. Where are you going to turn? You're going to turn to your great God, who's going to supply you with what you need. If you practice the biblical vision of womanhood, you will be swimming upstream. But the comfort that you can take is that your praise is ultimately going to come from the God who designed you and made you a woman. It's honorable in your heavenly Father's eyes. And this isn't an alone, lone wolf sort of a thing. Learn from women of substance at Faith Bible Church. We have many women of substance of Faith Bible Church who have lived many years and have demonstrated this character and quality and learn from them. If you do not learn from them, you're a fool. Learn from them because you cannot do this on your own. And men, this isn't, a, this isn't a sermon just for your wives or for your daughters. It is a sermon for you because men, you need to praise women of substance. You need to treat women with honor as Jesus did. 
You need to treat women of substance in the church honorably. Not just in your, local, in your own family, do that, but in the church. If you're unmarried as a man, seek a woman like this, and yet, don't make it perfection. That's not what Proverbs 31 is doing. It is saying, by God's grace, this woman is growing and she demonstrates good character. Husbands, praise your wives. Praise your wives. And maybe the reality is, maybe she doesn't measure up in all of those ways. That doesn't mean you don't praise her. You praise her. You love her. You are committed to her. Praise your wife. And men, help to raise daughters like this. And again, why, what's at stake in all of this? If we do this, if we fulfill God's design for biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, God gets great glory and honor. The gospel is adorned in a culture of confusion that doesn't know what a woman is, or a man for that matter. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, the calling is high for both men and women, and we know we are sinners and we are in need of the grace of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of our sin and grace to change and to grow. Make us men and women like that. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the grace that is through Jesus Christ. Amen.